you know, have you ever thought for yourself in your life, your Christian life, if when you're wrestling with something that you know you shouldn't be doing, do you, do, have you ever thought, do I really want to change, you know, this, perhaps this sin, you know, that you're dealing with? Do, you know, have you ever said this? You've committed a sin and you come up with the idea of, well, I'm never going to do that, that again. Has that ever happened? Only what? A few days later, there you are, doing it again, right? And, you know, if, if you're a Christian, I'm assuming all of y'all are, you know, do you ever have the idea that maybe I shouldn't get stuck in the same sinful cycle that I have in the past, only to find yourself stuck there again, right? So how, how do we get from where we are to where God wants us to be? And uh, I think the way we do that is sometimes we have to realize when we find ourselves stuck like this is maybe I don't really want to change. Does that sound harsh? You know, what if, you know, if you came to me and, and you and I had been talking about some issues in your life and, you know, here we are two or three years down the road and you're still struggling with that thing. And I said to you, you know what, I think your problem is you don't really want to change. You act like you want to. You think it's a good idea. You know, does that sound harsh? I mean, would you be okay to say that to somebody? Is it harsh to say, hey, you know what, maybe you don't want to change. Maybe you like what you're doing. Well, you know, I can lead the way in that, right? I can say to myself that maybe that selfish pleasure is just too pleasurable for me. I like it, right? I, I know the Bible says I shouldn't pursue it. I, I know I shouldn't allow that to dominate my calendar or my wallet, you know. But the, at the end of the day, sometimes I love the creation more than I love the creator, right? Are you okay with that? You know, I mean, I would, that, that's a horrible thing to say. Why would I do that? Why would I ever love God's creation more than him? But yet, when I think of a thought like that, I, I, I have to come to the conclusion that that's true in my life sometimes. Otherwise, I wouldn't find myself doing some of the things I do sometimes, right? So, I don't like that, but, you know, but thankfully, um, the Lord has answers for us, right, when we struggle. And, you know, sometimes um, I really do want to change, but I, I just feel stuck, you know, and that's when I need brothers and sisters in my life to help me. And, and so hopefully what I want to talk about this morning is um, four words. They all begin with the letter C that help me in my struggles. And hopefully you can use them in your life to help you with your struggles. Um, these four action words, keep in mind, they will not produce change in your life. Why? Because only the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God will produce change. Lasting heart change. I, I can't tell you all how many people in the last 20 years in my, in my job that have come to me and, and they genuinely want to stop using drugs. Genuinely want to, but they don't want to submit to Christ. 
So it's a temporary thing. It's not a lasting change that can take place. And lasting change can only be produced through the Spirit of God and the Word of God by the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God in our lives. I had a guy I talked to yesterday, um, and I had forgotten that I put on my, my voicemail while I was gone that I wouldn't be back to work until Tuesday the 19th. I forgot all about that. And I'm listening to voicemails, and this guy called, and he uh, wanted to meet with me, and uh, he's got an addiction. And he, I called him yesterday, and he said, well, I thought you weren't going to be back till the 19th. And I was thinking, did I talk to this guy before? How in the world would he know that? I'd forgotten all about the change. And I'm usually not that ahead of the game to have a voicemail that actually says I'm out of the office, right? And so I hung up and I said to Kit, I said, um, uh, I, for, I think I put a voicemail that said I would not be at work till the 19th. And she said, well, what are you doing working then? I said, <laughs> I didn't remember. But, um, you know, lasting heart change. These four words uh, remind us of how we can position our hearts closer to the Spirit of God in the grace of God. So the first one is to consider. So turn with me uh, to Psalm 139, and let's look at verses. I'm sure you all could quote it. Um, very often quoted uh, verses, verses 23 and 24. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Um, the um, psalmist David Learned a lot about David in Israel, of course. And uh, there's an interesting tidbit. The, uh, um, we were at one place. We were in Dan. This was on the desert side of things. And it was a mild 107 degrees. And, um, and um, anyway, our guide showed us uh, this spot. I can't remember what he called it. But in 1991, they found a rock, first one with uh, David's name inscribed on it. And that was awesome, right? And so David was real. I know there's some Hebrew scholars that that's always been a big contention of debate, but there was his name. So he wrote this song. We saw the cave where he was hiding from Saul in, in Getty, and um, that was really cool. Um, you know, you've read that, you know, where he was in there and, Saul came in there to use the bathroom, and and um, David could have killed him, but instead he went and cut a piece of his robe off. I mean, you're standing there looking at this, you know, and those thoughts are going through your mind. And when Saul, after he relieves himself and he leaves the cave, you know, David stands out there, hey, by the way. But he knew that God's timing wasn't right for him to do that there. And talk about an obedient guy. Right, he had the opportunity right there. I can take it. You know, I'm I'm the king. God's already told me so. But anyway, we saw that. So David's a real guy, and and um, here he is in this psalm, and he says in verse 23, "Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me." I read that from my notes. I don't think that's all. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So the first step to change requires us to look intently into the mirror of God's word and consider or examine what the Bible says about us. You know, isn't that an interesting thing that 
to consider what the Bible says about us. Can you really say that? I mean, with gumption in your heart, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Do you really want God to do that? I mean, gosh, I mean, sometimes no, no way. Don't do that. But he's crying out, see if there be any grievous way in me. Are you okay with asking God that, considering those thoughts, considering what a great and holy God could do to us in a second? He could annihilate this entire, less than a second, whatever that means. He could annihilate his entire creation, which includes us, right? So that's kind of a scary thing to say, to ask God to search you and know your heart. When Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17 says, you know, uh, that, that we're what? Desperately sick. We're wicked. And Jeremiah even goes on and says, we can't even know our own hearts. I mean, do you really know yourself? Biblically speaking, no. Right? Only God does. And by the way, at the beginning of that Jeremiah 17 pasture, Darby and I were sitting next to each other, not next to each other, but uh, Kit was to my left. We kind of took our own row, you know, on the bus. And Karen was in front of me. Darby was here, one in front of Kit, so I could look at him like this. And we talked a lot. And he um, had prepared a lesson for in Getty. And... Um, you know, this is the desert, and at the beginning of Jeremiah 17, he says, you know, the man, cursed is the man that, I'm paraphrasing this, but cursed is the man that trusts in his flesh, right? And he, and he, he will be like a uh, thorn bush in the desert wasteland, and that's where we were. And Darby and I were like, look at that one. We're trying to get a picture of it, but the bus was going, oh, there's another one. And, I mean, just a dried up, desolate, burn up, crispy little thorny nothing of a bush, you know. And God says, if you trust in yourself, that's what you're like. And then he goes on in that passage and talks about, but blessed is the man, kind of the same line of thought as Psalm chapter 1, right? Um, How blessed is the man who does not trust in himself, but he'll be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water. And we, you don't walk maybe a half a mile and it, towards this oasis in Engedi. So you've gone from this dried up little thorny bush that's in an uninhabited salt land. By the way, the Dead Sea's right here, uninhabited salt land. You're looking at that, but over here is this dried up bush. You walk a half a mile and everything's green because of this stream coming out of the desert. And, you know, that's what God says. If you trust in me and not yourself, that's what you'll be like. So for us to ask God to search our hearts and see, you know, what's there, that's a scary thing to me. I don't know if it is for you guys, but because what happens when he shows you what's there? Now you've got a choice to make, right? Am I going to obey God and, and try and mortify this thing that he has just shown me, or am I going to just continue to do it? And I think that's the whole point we're trying to see here is as we see ourselves daily in the reflection of the mirror of God's word, you know, we got to make a choice. I mean, how many times today has each one of us looked in the mirror? Lots, right? I mean, if when I was shaving this morning, if I shaved half my face and then walked out, you know, that'd be kind of weird. Or if I got out of the shower and I wasn't looking in the mirror while I brushed my hair, 
you know, I just got, we don't do that, do we? We stand in front of the mirror, we see what's wrong, and we, what? We fix it, right? And then we walk away. Well, what about God's Word? You know, do we stand in front of it, see what's wrong with us, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and God's bringing stuff to our attention while we're reading the Word, and He's pointing things out to us through His Word, and, and then we just turn around and walk away and not change it, that would be like coming to church without making any corrections that you saw wrong in the mirror. You know, mirrors, they're part of our lives, right? But the repeated returns to the mirror establish the point that our memories are like, I can't ever say this word right, so I'll throw it out there and you tell me what it is. It's like we went on a, it means sifting. We We sifted through some rubble in Israel and you have the little tray. Sieve or sieve? What do you call it? Sieve? Sieve. Yeah, it's um, S-I-E-V-E-S, right? So, you know, the point is that, that repeated returns to the mirror point that our, our memories are like sieves. I forgot what I looked like. And um, by the way, that was kind of a joke that turned out to be on me um, through the sieving process. We, we got to do archaeological sifting, if you will, uh, while we were there. And my wife, bless her heart, she grew up going to the mountains with her grandpa, and she always has loved doing the, you know, you drive up North Georgia or North Carolina and you see the pan for gold, rubies, and da-da-da-da-da. And I've, our 45 years of marriage, well, it would have been about 43 at this point. You know, I've always just said, no, we're not stopping. <laughs> you know, that's all just baited. They just put a couple trinkets in there for, no, no, you get real stuff. My mom got a ruby and da, da, da. I had a ring made. Now, no, we're not stopping. I think it was our 43rd anniversary. I took her on a date and we went sifting up in Cleveland, Georgia or something. She found all kind of stuff, you know, and it was kind of cool, I guess, but... <laughs> You know, they, so the whole trip, all these people on the trip were looking forward to the sifting, Shane in particular. And I said, yeah, I was coming back from downtown Jerusalem last night on the train. I saw these guys with these broken shards of pottery that asked them what they were doing. They said, oh, we're going to the sifting site to put this in there so some <laughs> tourists can come by tomorrow and find it, you know. But, <laughs> but that's not how it works, so... Uh, so I was, I have to confess, you know, it, um, it wasn't like that. It was real. And, but then I thought, well, what a racket. They're using people that paid all this money to come on this trip to do their sifting for them. You know, but it was pretty cool. They had uh, the stuff we were sifting was uh, from, uh, if you've been there, the wall around the uh, Temple Mount, um, on the western wall, help me out if I'm wrong, Kevin, the, uh, Wilson's Arch was found in the late 1800s, I think, right? Or maybe early 1800s. 1800s. And uh, by the way, if you go over there and you find something, you know, it, it's named after you. So that's an encouragement to go sifting or digging. And um, we were um, sifting rubble from underneath Wilson's Arch, there's still a huge pile of stuff from the destruction of the whole thing in A.D. 70. Still there. You know, it's like, wow. So they kind of showed us how, gave us a little instruction in 15 minutes or so, and then you walk out into this other area, and they had these black, like, three-gallon buckets there full of stuff, water and mud and stuff. 
and you walk over to your little station, you dump it in there, you husband and wife work together, and, and you hose it off, and you start, and they give you a muffin tin with six slots in it. One was for bones, one for special stones, one for uh, mosaics, one for marble, one for glass, and one for pottery. And so as you're, you know, you pick through, but then you can't dump it until you get one of them to come over and be sure you got everything. And then, of course, they take about half of what you thought was something out and throw it out away. But, um, but we found some neat stuff. You know, I, Kit and I found a mosaic, a black mosaic, perfect little square. It was really cool. And found some bone. We found a big bone. Somebody found the jawbone of a pig that had two teeth in it and then a singular molar. Um, uh, what else? All tons of pottery. But anyway, sifting, right? Uh, got off track there, sorry. Um, so everybody had fun sifting. But James, of course, uses this illustration of the mirror as well, right? And you've heard the stories since you were a little kid, what mirrors were like in the old, uh, the, the days of old. You know, it was polished metal. They set it horizontally on a table where you kind of had to come and bend over to look at it. But, you know, you would see yourself, but granted it was a very poor uh, uh, reflection of yourself. Perhaps maybe like if you get out of the shower at home, you had the bathroom door closed and you had the water too hot and the mirror fogs up and you don't wipe it off. Maybe it's about like that. You can't see real good. You know, maybe appear in there it'd be a little bit like that. But the point of comparison, though, is that the person who looks at themselves in the image in the mirror, promptly forgets what they've seen is the same, James tells us, as people that hear the word of God proclaimed day in, day out, week in, week out, month after month, and never respond to it, right? What a travesty that is. So, you know, we have to, uh, we, we physically adjust ourselves when we get a good image in the mirror, so why don't we make the adjustments from the Word of God, right? The mirror is an object that's used to, to alter our appearance. The Word of God is, is in us to confront us, to alter the sins that we have in our lives, and it demands a response just like the mirror does, right? So why do we walk away from God's Word? I mean, you know, sometimes, I mean, this is, I'm guilty of this, right? It seems incredible, yet very true in my life that I hear a sermon on Sunday, and if you ask me Monday morning, you know, what was that about, I, I can't remember it. You know, I have to, you know, that's why I take notes sometimes, you know, is to help me remember these things. And, you know, it's the same thing with, with our quiet times. You know, if, if we spend time in God's Word and, and then... You know, you ask me tomorrow, well, what was your, or even at 2 o'clock this afternoon, what was your quiet time this morning? Uh, um, well, it was in Matthew, right? Matthew, what? What was God speaking? Well, I don't know. But you know what? I, could, I can pull up um, Nick Chubb busting through the defensive line of Samford and making a big gain just like that, right? What's the deal there? How do I walk away from God's word and I can't remember that, right? And it's because I'm not considering what the Bible is saying and how it wants me to change. So our first word is consider what the Bible is saying. Consider what God wants me to do with it. And so the second word then, second C word is confess. 
if we accurately consider what the Bible says about us, it'll be very tempting to run away, and I hate this, it'll be very tempting to run away from the verdict or lessen the blow by making excuses, shifting the blame. Don't we do that? You know, you see the verdict from God's word. Well, well, she... No, we can't do that, right? Change only happens when we confess that we are the primary problem. And so flip back a little bit to Psalm 51. Uh, Change only happens when we confess that we are the primary problem. And David gives us a great example of that. which, by the way, this is a fairly new archaeological discovery. I can't remember how new, but I'll just throw this out there. If you were there maybe more than five or ten years ago, you wouldn't have seen this. But in the city of David now, which is on the south side, I think, yeah, the south side of the Temple Mount area of Jerusalem there is the city of David. And um, they've got a new viewing area there. It was freshly shellacked. You could smell the the varnish, you know. It was really nice. But our guide said, you see those pillars right there? And they weren't tall. They were only about this high or so. And that's the rooftop of David's house where he, what, saw Bathsheba, right? I mean, there it was. I was like, whoa, that's big to me. That's really big. And that's this psalm is his his confession here of these th- that sin. So there I was. Kevin asked me when I walked in, he said, so is it in color now rather than black and white? And when I could see something like that, absolutely. I mean, that blows me away that we were there. You know, and there were so many times like that there. So let's read a few verses here. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Well, that's a pretty powerful statement. He knows his transgressions. He's recognizing it. He's not blame shifting. He's entered into a a mode of repentance and confession, admitting to God. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's accepting whatever God has for him, right? Behold, I was brought forth in, in, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So he, he's admitting again, you know, I'm done without you cleansing me, God. I can't get clean on my own. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So he's crying out to God in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. You know, to to his credit, he recognized how horrendous his sin was. And again, he blamed no one but himself. 
and he begged for divine forgiveness. Isn't that awesome? That, I mean, this guy committed some horrendous sins, and yet he doesn't see himself as unforgivable. You know, he knows where he's got to go, but he doesn't try and justify it. He did it first until Nathan said, you know, well, you're the one, right? And this is his response. In desperate need of forgiveness. And that's all we can do, right? Cast ourselves on God's mercy. The verb have mercy, it occurs frequently in Psalms of Lament. Um, You read it over and over and over again. And, you know, when sin disrupts fellowship with God, we have no right to divine blessings. Are you okay with that? We don't have any right to them, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't give them, right? God doesn't judge you and I on our performance. That's a hard pill for me to swallow, especially after seeing all that stuff people in Israel are doing, trying to gain favor with God. But Jerry Bridges, I read a book years ago by him where he he explained it like this. He said that he had a great quiet time, you know, just spent great time with the Lord. And before he leaves the house, though, he gets into a dispute with his wife. Has that ever happened? Well, not to me, you know, we got it going on, but of course it does, right? And so then later on in the day, he has the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and the thought pops into his mind, I'm unworthy to do that, right? I just sinned against my wife this morning. I didn't have made it right with her yet. You know, God can't use me. That's the wrong way of thinking, right? God doesn't base his love for us upon how we are doing. That's a hard, hard, hard concept for me to grasp. Maybe it's easier for you, but it's hard for me to understand that because I want to be doing. I want to be gaining favor by my performance. You know, and that's what all those people in Israel are doing is trying to gain favor with God by what they are doing. Where grace on the other side of the coin says, no, it's all about me, Tim, and not you. Which then should, of course, spur us into a mode of worship and reverence and honor and adoration and fear of God that makes us obedient believers. Does that make sense? You know, but boy, it's hard to not get caught up in that, you know, doing mode. So, but sin does disrupt fellowship with the Lord. Are you okay with that? Psalm 66, 18, I think it is. It says uh, that, uh, well, let's just read it. Should be able to quote that one. I've quoted it a hundred times. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So when we walk around with unconfessed sin in our lives, we're not any less blessed, we're not any less saved, but God's not hearing our prayers, right? So have you ever wondered perhaps, you know, boy, I've been praying about that for a long time, but you haven't confessed some sins. You know, it could be that that's why... You're not getting answers to your prayers. And Isaiah 59, uh, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that I, it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So we can, we're not losing salvation. We're not losing our relationship with God, but he's not listening to us until we come in repentance, in confession. 
So we had consider and we got confess. Uh, And thankfully, the Lord is so gracious that he's promised to forgive us his unfailing love and his great compassion. He's always uh, using divine grace to blot out our sins and to cleanse us. Um, So our responsibility now is to walk in a manner worthy of a forgiven person. You know, First John 1, 9, you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, have you ever thought this, you know, well, if I'm totally forgiven, and you are, then why do we have to confess? Why do we have to ask God to forgive us if we are forgiven? What do you think? What would be the reason in that? That kind of seems weird. You know, this would be the time that y'all talk. Pride. Pride, pride okay. Relationship. Pardon? Relationship. A relationship, sure. It humbles us. It humbles us, yeah. Because we have to admit something, and boy, we don't like that. There's the pride, you know. And it's what God asks us to do. It restores that relationship with him. Just like, I just love the way the Lord has... You know, he's he's given us so many perfect pictures of what he's like that you wonder how, I'm speaking of myself, I suppose, but how I can miss it so badly sometimes. So take marriage, right? I mean, isn't that a perfect picture of our relationship with God? You know, the husband and the wife, the, the bride and the church, uh, the bridegroom and the church. Um, perfect picture of that. Well, you know, y'all know as well as I do that when you get into one of those disagreements, disputes, fights, arguments, whatever you want to call it, with your wife, you know what that feels like, right? You know something's wrong. Darn it, i got to go make this right. There's the pride, you know. And, but you're still married. That doesn't separate that covenant. But you know that there's something that's wrong. And that's the same way with why we come to God for forgiveness. We are never not well let me say it this way um courtroom speaking the the we're not guilty right forensically speaking we are not guilty that's been taken care of through christ but relationally we need to make things right again so our responsibility is to now walk in a manner worthy of a forgiven person so the third c then is to commit. Once we've considered and once we've confessed, we ought to be grieved by the reality of our sins, right? And, and the, the grief should spur us into action. Commitment can take, it can take lots of different forms, but it needs to be some plan to move from, we need to have some plan to move from where we are to where God wants us to be. So I think we get a good picture of that in Romans chapter 12. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 there. Um, you know, I, I, when I was first saved, I heard a preacher say this. This isn't true, okay? It's not true, but he said it, and it helps me think sometimes through my life. But it's not true. You ready? What I'm getting ready to say It's not true. But he said, uh, if I'd have known being a Christian was this hard, I'd have thought twice about being one. You know, because it is hard, right? That part's true. It is hard, but, you know, we don't make ourselves Christians. That's not true. So we don't get to, you know what I mean? Anybody that has been 
awakened by the Spirit of God and responds to the Spirit of God is a believer not because of what you've done, but because of what God's done. But it is hard, right? Because we got this flesh that we're constantly trying to mortify. So anyway, we got to commit. And uh, there needs to be some plan to move from where we are to where God wants us to be. And it's hard. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not, what? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if you look at the attitude of these two verses, you know, we, we ought to be willing to lay ourselves down and commit totally to God. We ought to be willing to do that. You know, when we think the missing element is just find out how to get more of God or to get more from God, I should say, but the idea is to give more of ourselves to God. Get rid of me. You know, I have to get rid of Tim. The number one enemy is not the devil in my life. The number one enemy is me, right? And this is really simple for me because I always say it like this. What's the middle letter in the word sin? I, the middle letter in the word Tim. I, I is the problem, right? Satan can't make me do anything. I am the problem. Right? I've got to work on this. The, and as I do, the result is that my mind begins to be renewed. I remember the one and only, I've I, I got to go back sometime, but I went to the Shepherds Conference in 2003, which was right when uh, John MacArthur's book, um, Hard to Believe, came out. I think that was the name of it. And um, he preached a sermon you know, about that in one of the sessions there. And he, he unpacked Luke 9.23. Now, if anyone wants to come after me, he has to deny himself and take up his cross and, and follow me. And when he unpacked that deny yourself, it really impacted my life, you know, the, the way he went into that. I have to realize that I am the last person on earth that I would want to hang out with. I mean, think of the most despicable human being on this planet. You know, who would that be for you? You know, an Adolf Hitler or my wife and I went, we, we, we rode the tram in Jerusalem from one stop to the end of the city. And uh, we went to the Holocaust Museum. And uh, I, I'm telling you, um, that was a, a horrible human being. You know, I wouldn't no more want to spend a minute and a half with him, much less a day with him. Well, that's not the worst guy. It's me. I got to get rid of me. Right. That's who I can't hang out with. Right. So we, we must we got to approach God with an attitude of commitment. I got to commit myself, you know, to to not spend three hours at the Wailing Wall, not spend. You know, I got to commit myself to follow the commands of God as he lays them out and shows them to me in his word. So now that we're considering, confessing and committing. Lastly, we've got to continue you know this will sound obvious but change is not taking place until what change has taken place and and at some level we all stop short 
you know, we talk about change, we create an action plan for change, but then we never follow through or we give up with discouragement, right? And I think it's because the process of heart and life change is that. It's a process. It's not an event, you know, and I lose sight of that sometimes. But it's comforting to know that it's a process because that if I mess up here, then right next to that mess up, I can get back in my process of God changing me. And Paul tells us that, as we saw a few months back in Colossians 1, verse 23, he says, continue in the faith. And I love these words, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we got to continue. You know, we got, have to continue. And um, the gospel of Christ provides us the hope and the help we need to press on. So one way we can do that is to, to, to surround ourselves with believers who will, who will walk with us. You know, and that's, again, a blessing of, of marriage in, in the faith is that we've got somebody that's with us most of the time, if we're not at work or they're not at work or whatever, that we can walk with, we can talk things through with them. And then we need to place ourselves under good preaching. We have to dive into the Word of God and pray even when we don't feel like it. You know, I'm amazed at how many Christians don't spend time with God. You know, again, the, the comparison of a marriage, if y'all don't spend time with each other, how's your marriage? not real good, right? You got to be talking. You got to be communicating. And how do we talk and communicate with God? By reading his word and by praying. And I'll never forget, and y'all have probably heard this story before, but I'll never forget that when I was first being introduced into biblical counseling, the the pastor, Craig Tuck, the guy that started Faith Community, um, he told me one day he wanted me and Kit to meet with this guy and his wife. And I was like, oh, boy. You know, this guy, went. he and his wife went to Moody Bible College. They met there. And then he went on and went to seminary at Trinity. And he's one of these guys that I think probably has a photographic memory. His house, I kid you not, every room in his house was floor-to-ceiling books, shelves. Every room, not just one or two rooms, every room. Maybe not the kids, but the living room, the dining room, their bedroom, floor-to-ceiling books. And I promise you this guy we could go find him today i know where he works and and you could pull a book off the shelf and ask him a question he could say like well on page 310 in the right hand column this guy says da 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 and this guy's wanting you know i don't have any formal education this guy's wanting me to meet with him are you kidding me so i mean i was flipped out flipped out and so before they come, Kit and I are huddled down in the living room praying, oh, God, help us, you know, what are we going to do? We're freaked out. And uh, so they come in, and I, you know, I still didn't have a clue what I was going to say. And they sit down, and it just popped into my mind. And I said, well, what's God been teaching you in your quiet time? And you know what the guy's response was? Huh. Quiet time? Well, I hadn't had one of those in years. And I'm like, what? You know, you learned 
can pick page 317, right-hand column, out of any book I pull off your shelf and tell me what, and you don't spend time with God. I don't get that. So I, you know, said, well, that's what your homework is. You're going to have a quiet time this week. And he came back. They, I wish I could say things turned out well, but it didn't. But um, he he did come back the next week and and was had a vigor and a fire within him because he had been back in God's living word again. You know, and there's going to be a day when sin will be eradicated for us, but not yet. But in the meantime, God has, has, H-A-S, has given us everything we need to live a life pertaining to godliness, right? And that's 2 Peter 1, 3, of course, you know, to life and godliness. And since that's true, we have to avail ourselves to what he's given us in his word. That's where our hope comes from. That's where our drive comes from. We don't have to go to these edifices and worship some weird item in order to relate with our loving, holy God. Of course, based upon what he's done. And then we've got this word here that, um, you know, I, I was just blown away again at uh, Qumran where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, that just backed all this stuff up. There it was. And funny, we joked a couple of times that while we were there, of, uh, or I did, of how unworthy I would have been to be an Essene and lived at Qumran because I can't deny my flesh. I think, was that where that was all going on? I think it was, yeah. And um, the example I used was I couldn't leave the dessert alone. I hadn't had dessert in forever, and every night, you know, this massive display, big as this room, dessert table, you know. And and uh, I said, well, I'm not worthy of being an Essene in Qumran. I couldn't deny my flesh. And we watched a funny little movie of uh, that there, and they used an example of two of these young men that were part of that sect, I guess you would call it, uh, they weren't, you had to work your way up into the system there. This is a place where these guys went out and they were copying scrolls, you know, they were writing, copying. And, you know, you might be four days and three hours into it and make one little mistake. And you, guess what? You got to start the whole thing over again. So you talk, you had to really know what you're doing to do this, right? And, um, well, the, in this little movie, these two guys, uh, they, one of them swiped a scroll. Something flying around here. One of them swiped a scroll, and it was uh, the Song of Solomon. And they're reading it. Have you seen that little movie they show? <laughs> and they're reading it over here, and they're talking about a woman, you know. And, and oh, you know, one guy, he ends up leaving, you know, the lust of the woman reading. It wasn't a playboy. It was the Word of God, you know, but it led him away. He got kicked out, basically, and then decided he, he left, and he goes into Jerusalem, and and he meets a guy, takes him in there that was a, um, I guess, a priest or something there. And, and um, he couldn't believe that the guy left Qumran. So he goes. So you got one guy left and came and followed his flesh and left and came into the city. And the other guy followed the Lord. He left the city in his flesh and went out there to become more holy, you know. But... So the joke was, you know, I'm not worthy of being a Qumran Essene because I can't deny my flesh. But Anyway, so those are your four C's. Hopefully that will help you with your walk with the Lord. Um, I had some questions here that um, we don't really have time, but I'll read them real quick and you can just let them 
rattle around in your head if they'll stay there. Uh, first one is, in what ways have you been ignoring or apathetic to the diagnosis of Scripture in your life? That's kind of tough, isn't it? The second one is, where are you pointing the finger and blaming others for your own sins? Thirdly, what are some practical steps that you can take to wrestle with the passions of your flesh? Uh, fourthly, identify someone who is discouraged this week and how can you be their spiritual support and spur them on to good works for Christ? So, great things to ponder and consider. So, that's all. Drew will be back in Acts next week for us. And uh, we'll continue to move on. Any questions about that? Or? No? All right. Well, thanks for your time. <laughs>